that was the pre-existing interest that I had in was in place. I mean, in some times when I explain what I do, which is really quite a jack of all trades, master of none uh, stance in life, but but that's my expertise in some ways. Um, another way of explaining what I do is that I'm a kind of geographer. That there seems to always be a kind of thread about um, about place and its meaning. Um, and I've my very first piece of work, which sort of took me away from theatre, well, was a piece of theatre. Was was about a um, an area of a few square miles in southeast Kent in the UK that where I was sort of experiencing this sense of recognition of a place that I'd never been to before. So I was immediately interested in what that phenomenon was. And all, I spent like five years with a microphone and a Super 8 camera trying to in, sort of investigate by filming, by recording, by interviewing people, um, what, that, what that phenomenon is. And in, in a way, that, that sense of recognition um, for myself, demarks a kind of working idea that the landscape is like a read-write surface. It's like a sort of visitor's book that you find in a place you rent, you know, and you, and you sign in and you find that other people have already sort of signed into it, that we, we use landscape and place as a way of sort of marking our, um, marking our lives, um, you know, the, the tree you snogged under um, becomes a sort of mark in your life, but it might have a completely different meaning in, in someone else's. And so there's a sort of mapping. And in my work, say, with radio transmitters, I'm particularly interested in those kind of pinpoint pins in the map, if you like, that, that what happens uh, with a radio transmitter, if you, if you think about something like a local radio station, it kind of draws in its material from a kind of area around it and sort of condenses it and, and then redistributes it and something sort of transforms by the sort of marking of these the marking of these places you know Romans used to mark on their maps uh, Newman Est which means this is a place of spirits you know and I'm kind of quite interested in those loci and how they affect the the landscape around it. So this is really a loci piece. This is absolutely about attempting to pinpoint a place where, in a sense, you know, a narrative has happened, and that narrative's quite sort of violent and sad and extremely political um, narrative. And it began by accident. So you know, I I didn't set out to, to make a piece of work that um, that has a political story to tell but I'm quite glad that it's it's a piece of work that almost implicitly tells that story but but I set out really as a kind of geographer uh, invited by the BBC to make a little segment for a, a, a radio piece um, which was about landscape. And so I chose three sites around London airports where I knew that people had fallen from aircraft. I, I came across that story about a year before working as a composer for a play 
in which a character had travelled in the wheel bay of an aircraft and I sort of that got me going and started me researching these sites so with a microphone in hand I went to these three sites uh, one of which is a Sainsbury's car park big Sainsbury's in Richmond and I kind of lay down amongst the trolleys <laughs> and it's quite interesting because people do leave you alone if you lie down on the ground at the supermarket um, and spent you know, quite a long time staring up at the sky uh, and then moved to just across the road to a home base car park so you're in these, these sort of you're in these places where you know that just inside those glass doors of that big warehouse uh, people are sort of worrying about what kind of garden furniture they're going to buy you know, they're, they're, they're places of supreme choice they're, they're, they're cornucopias of wealth and I'm lying in a, at a site where someone who had basically just been in a completely where a Pakistani man had travelled to the Middle East and reached a point of absolute exploitation and poverty and then tried to reach London had been found by an airport worker and so I was sort of interested in just trying to sort of inhabit these places or I extemporised into the microphone and then jettisoned all the, everything I had to say seemed really stupid so I, I wrote a piece and I recorded these sounds but also what happened is that those places kind of recorded themselves in me. It's a real, it's a real physical act, and lying on the ground, belly up. Um, it, it's a kind of vulnerability. You're engaged in the landscape. You're plastered with your back to it, and you're looking up. And it's a thing that you probably haven't done since you were a kid, but it's, it's quite a sort of open and childlike position, being belly up. It's vulnerable. And, and it almost feel like you're almost taking a photograph with your, with your stomach. You're in a, in a real situation with your real body in real space and in real time. And that act of doing that, it's quite a private thing. So, so I found myself in a kind of one-to-one -one dialogue with someone I don't know. And so it's a bit like answering that same question of... of how do you engage with a place you don't know? How, how, do, you, how do you bridge the gap into the unknown? Uh, and in a sense, you're always doing that by acknowledging you know, any other human being, any other, even looking at your cat, that you're, you're kind of challenging their otherness. I, sometimes I look at my cat and I think, bloody hell, you know, it's a cat. It's a cat looking back at me through this kind of furry face. And, and, and you realise it's not, you, you think you know what it is. And actually, the, it's kind of wondrous. It's kind of amazing, this otherness. So, so to sort of put yourself into the sh in someone else's shoes, to, to project empathy, is quite an interesting process, because I think we do it all the time. So in, in a sense, with this project, I was sort of investigating, how far can I do this? Can I go back in time and... Um, sort of meet someone, as it were. The, the big quality that we have is, even though these people fell to earth already dead, I think in every case, possibly not one, I don't know. It's a, that's a kind of scary thought, but 
largely, I think, people were already dead and they didn't know where they were. And yet somehow I'm part of a humanity that, that still illogically cares about repatriation of bodies. We do. It, 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 it doesn't matter. The body doesn't know, but we who remain want to sort of bring, bring home. And I think I find the idea of absolute solitariness um, kind of fascinating. I think it's a sort of existential state that, that underlies everything we do. You know, we, we, it's how we enter and leave, the, leave our lives is in utter solitude. And yet we live, we, we live among people. But I think the, the notion, the projecting myself into situations where you're utterly alone in a very scary situation is not an uncommon uh, human situation. It's a situation where people have put all their chips on one card. They've really... So just taking that story of migration, people who have maybe nice homes with pools may have at one point had just the change in their pocket and no passport. They may... And so I, I know people who've been through that those situations in migration. I was talking to a Serbian woman who really had to sort of bribe her way past soldiers and in a very, very scary get-out-now-or-not situation um, in, during the war in Bosnia. And she describes, having seen this piece, she said, it, that's it, you're, you're like a drawing pin on its point. And later in life, you can turn that around and be like a drawing pin on its back. Um, there's a moment of absolute sort of solitude. And there's this image, this imagined sort of falling, um, that somehow I, I, you meet, and you meet by kind of force of imagination. You meet into this kind of impossible space. So, yeah, really, when you're lying on your back, you, there is there is no up in the universe. Uh, you know, there, there's no north, there's no south in the cosmos. It, it, it's a sort of idea of a kind of solidity, and really, you're on a you're on a big lump of hard stuff, looking at a whole load of gas stuff that gets thinner and thinner and goes on into infinity. And if you lie for long enough, you get a real sense of of what that is. That kind of gaseousness and the tenuousness of everything and also how sort of solitary you are so this process of sort of meeting someone else meeting someone's otherness is problematic yet creatively possible I suppose and I, in a funny way I enjoyed that experience and in many cases I absolutely enjoyed this experience of lying my back and looking up at the sky for half an hour or an hour or so and you look back and you see buildings, you see the whole horizon around you. Um, so I, I did this piece, I wrote it, it was okay, not that great. But what resided in me was a kind of body memory of these three locations. And that's really where Behel was born. And I think Behel represents a kind of tactic I, I seem to keep coming back to as an artist, which is to... Um, 
try, I mean, there are different modes people work in, but I, I think there's a very understandable formula here, which is that I have a certain kind of experience and a certain thought that I find very useful and kind of illuminating for myself, and I'm trying to share it. Um, I'm, it's as simple as that. There's a kind of um, correlation, if you like, between my own, uh, my own experience and, and creating a kind of analogue for it. So this piece is, is absolutely about that and I'm slightly inviting you um, into my shoes, I suppose, to kind of have a, an imaginative and, and a physical experience. So, I mean, we'll go in a, in a minute, I think, together. And inside, so what I've done is I've, I've projected, I've taken photographs of these images. It's possible with a, a fisheye lens, which takes the whole image of the sky to sort of replicate uh, that viewing of it. And I've inverted it. So in a similar way... <laughs> sorry. Uh, in a similar way, what's up and what's down it gets translated into this piece. That, that sort of upward, downward vertigo, ambivalence between whether you're looking at, whether you're the person falling or you're the person looking up. They're really, the, they're really versions of the same. We can inhabit the flip side. You know, we, we can sort of excite our mirror neurons and, and, uh, experience those things. So that gets translated into glass and into glass bowls that, that create that kind of domed effect and you'll see the horizon um, frosted around it. Now normally um, or until about a year ago I've exhibited this piece as a series of these glass bowls. So they fill quite a large space. The first iteration of it was in a church space. It has a, a, a deconsecrated church. It was sort of perfect. It had this huge volume of, of darkness above you. It was also a place that suited this sort of slightly sacramental process of, of lifting and holding these bowls. The other element that's projected into the glass is sound and I've used this technology called NXT transducers, which are special. They have a little magnet that you get on the back of a loudspeaker that vibrates, uh, and it's specially sort of attuned to make the object it's attached to emit sound. So by lifting the bowl, which you can do in a minute, you'll be experiencing sound, which I recorded just a few days ago at Sydney Airport. And, and most of the, the sounds that I've recorded include the sounds of planes. And you'll see the, the images of other sites which are not projected into glass bowls, but I've sort of stored them. I've, I've found a way of still using these transparencies and um, glass lenses that act a bit like Victorian paperweights. They sort of pull, pull the image up into the glass. So again, they're sort of glass and they're they're sort of like little worlds. They're, they're, um, they're a way, they're a means in, in a way for me to be here. That This piece I've just decided a year ago uh, to continue doing. So rather than treat it as... Um, rather than treat it as a kind of product, I've decided 
partly through being the person who seems to know most about these incidents now, I've continued this process of research beyond the original ten that I did, and I'm sort of landed with it now. I just that's it. I, I'm just going to keep doing it, and actually, so exhibition itself provides the means to add to it, and I'm really happy with that kind of economy. Um, I'm I'm able to take, I'm able to add to this thing, and and there's probably. So this is uh, the 13th one that I've added and there's probably about the same again unrecorded and, and those are often in quite, you know, I started off going where EasyJet goes or, you know, the, the budget airline um, distance from London um, but there's ones in China and Africa, I've been to the States and just recently did one in LA that's not been added to it because I've not exhibited it. It's quite a difficult equation. But in a sense, uh, what, what we have in there is the new one, is the centrepiece. And then you'll see around the edge the, I guess, kind of constellating that one, the other, the other sites. Uh, and the sites don't, don't tell the story of who people are. And I've Partly because I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not creating a memorial and I'm not making a documentary. I'm, I'm trying to create something more active that will invite the viewer or the, the holder, if you like, into kind of contact with your own life. You know, it's, it's really, I think even any memorial um, works in a way... Um, it can only a memorial is totally a dialogue between uh, the idea of someone and the living. You know, it, it's a, it's a sort of living work. This, and but it is about memory and it is about it is about place. And it's just there's no appropriate way to read it. I think it's quite a sort of visceral, oral, tactile chance to sort of meditate in quite an open way. On, on sort of other, other people and otherness. I, I, I think it's more of a sort of essay about that. There is an element where it is a memorial. I was just explaining earlier that, you know, if I'm talking to a kind of Russian coroner or something like that, I'll say, well, look, it's a memorial, uh, and that's a sort of shorthand for doing it. But we sort of know that memorial connotes something quite sort of static and dead and probably made in black marble or you know it's it's quite sort of leaden as an idea uh, I'm I think this has a slightly different a slightly different function although I'm quite happy to take on I one of the things it generates is a kind of solemnity amongst people um, that I don't have to offer any instruction to so in, in the sort of world of interactive you know, push the button, uh, kind of where, where kind of hyperactive sugar drink fueled children run around a museum or gallery, kind of pushing all the buttons. That kind of fidgety thing. I'm, I'm really quite interested in just slowing things down and just allowing people to be in a in a sort of solemn or meditative state. It's just it's really quite a natural sort of place to be. So I think my background is in performance. You know, I come out of you know, weird theatre of the 1980s 
and um, I have a legacy of that even though my work's drifted steadily into sort of visual art world there's still a sense where for me you know this this threshold here the black curtains is is where the space is where the piece begins it involves objects but it isn't the objects it, it's just the situation I'm, I'm, I'm generating uh, I'm generating a situation in which you are sort of invited to perform or watch or just just be and I think that dialogue that I have is a kind of is another kind of one-to-one that I, I'm um, I'm in, a, in other sort of aspects of my work I'm starting to sort of be interested in framing you know that, that actually just just framing and devising a sort of structure or an architecture or a kind of tactical space and then just letting people behave within that as, as they wish is, is, is a good way forwards because um, the, the level uh, at which you do that can be adapted and I'm, I'm sort of really interested in that communication without necessarily prescribing too much what it is I'm communicating I'm creating, I'm creating an opportunity I suppose that that creates certain kind of guidance towards things. So I suggest um, I shut up for a bit, and we just we just come through, and you just just sort of experience it. And what I might do, if you want, I can tell you a little bit, even though I I deliberately don't offer that information in the piece. I there are sort of stories behind some of these things that because this is a sort of special viewing, if you like, I could tell you a bit about. Would it be appropriate to ask a question now, or would you rather us wait until afterwards? Say it again. Would it be okay to ask a question now? Yeah, no, yes. it's fine to ask a question now, if one's come up. Okay, well, if people who stow away in the landing gear of, of aircraft, the majority of people are found by technicians at the airport. Their bodies are found. So the, the reality of it is you climb up inside this massive space with these huge hydraulic rams and these you know, wheels that are this high. Um, and you... There's, there's sort of spaces inside there, but soon after takeoff, there's no oxygen. It's minus 40 degrees, so people can sometimes get crushed by the machinery. And then their, their bodies are there, and then either their bodies will remain there, or when the plane comes into land, they'll fall to the ground. Now, how many people have fallen to the ground and nobody's seen? It's, it's a really interesting question, and, and that sort of... Um, we were in discussion yesterday about you know saying you know does the tree that falls in the forest on its own make any sound if there's no one there to hear it um, we don't know and there are cases there's, there's one instance around London of somebody having seen someone fall from a plane and bodies 
never been, never been found. However, I'd say the majority of people um, are found at the airport. And uh, yeah, it's also worth viewing the whole question in terms of this is, this is like the very, very tip of a massive pyramid of people who die migrating. And, and people who die migrating, most people drown. So when, when I was taking one of these photographs in Paris, I just read the paper and it was saying, since the beginning of February, um, five, over 500 people have drowned off the coast of Africa trying to get to the Canary Islands. And I just looked at the date on the paper and it was like the 12th of February. Um, we're talking about massive numbers now. You know, suddenly it's 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 massive that, that in the Mediterranean, something like five thousand people have died this year alone. Um, however, this this is about people. I only look at where people have fallen, and there's something about the falling. You know, something very very particular about falling as a kind of, you know, it's, it's in our language about the fallen, you know, a falling as a kind of kinetic, imaginative way of, of experiencing death or sleep or relinquishment. But it's also, its opposite is catching, you know, will, will the fallen be caught in some way? Um, so I, I'm really just been homing in on on the poetics of the fallen and, and, and it is, it does really occur to me about, I mean the last place I was before here was in Switzerland and I spent three days in a really gloomy ravine I had, had my little camping stove and it was, it was really quite a depressing place for some reason it's quite muddy and huge trees uh, and very little light getting in there and it was such a the, the the man who fell there had been there for quite a while and the snows had come and then the snows had gone again and a couple of local women had discovered him and I, th I think their shock was well, A, obviously finding a human body is quite, quite difficult but it was really about how long that person had been there. It's right under. So you'll see that particular one. That's one of the only night shots I've done. I've taken it at night, and you can see the streak of the plane landing lights going overhead. But basically, it's, it's on a flight path, and the fact that the body's it's got evidence of having frostbite, it's been frozen. You know, it's, it's those sorts of elements that will, so will tell you. It's when the wheels come down. So even travelling on a plane now, there's a particular... It's if you're sitting over where the main wheels are, there's a kind of clunk and lock of wheels coming down. And I'm just... I, you never know that, that same sort of unknown, unknown factor. But, but I think the piece is... You know, the piece relates to what's untold. You know, it's, it relates to any untold story which I'm slightly telling, it relates, it triggers the possibility of all the other untold stories, you know, that, that's a whole, the landscape of the hidden is what I'm kind of uncorking, I think, you know, it's, it's really about that uncertainty, it's quite, it's quite important to, to not know or to, but for certain it's happened. So if he fell there, 
and who's, who's fallen elsewhere and not been vulnerable, fallen into water, which has happened. There's a, there's a couple of sites in New York where people have fallen out into the bay where, where planes approach from the sea. I'm sure it's happened, yeah. Have you ever put yourself inside a space, inside mm. the plane? No. No. Um, I've sort of seen photographs of it. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, it's off, it's, it's, planes are of such a, on such a scale that it's really, they're sort of massive bits of machinery. And there is, yeah, there, there is space to be there. If, if it was, you know, heated and oxygenated, you could squirrel away there. But, um, you know, there have been, there have been incidents of people surviving. Unbelievably. And, and one of them, um, which I, I can point out to you, was, was a, another 14-year-old boy. So the main, the main piece is, um, is a 14-year-old um, Australian who is strangely trying to leave Australia. So it's a sort of really, it's, there's an interesting sort of story just in terms of, say, economy or, or the, the sort of image of, of Australia being part of the kind of landscape of fortress states, fortress Europe, fortress Australia, fortress America. Um, but there's that, there's a story also about maybe about 14-year-olds as well, which is a bit about supreme recklessness, you know, testosterone-fueled insanity of the 14-year-old boy. Uh, and um, yet we also don't know. We don't know the other story, which is that he was from a boy's home. We don't know what that was like. We don't know what he might have been sort of running away from. Um, but um, that Solomon, who's from uh, Cameroon, uh, this, this is really, this, this would be the incident I know most about and I know it because of a German filmmaker who really did the research and she made, made a film about this incident. Um, so Solomon made it to, he was found on the tarmac at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris and um, was taken into a kind of children's home and he, they, they basically didn't believe that he had flown in Wheelbay from Cameroon because it's something like 10 hours in a plane within a space that's minus 40 degrees and has no oxygen. So it, it's, despite that, he, he was telling the truth and it was clear that he and, and maybe about, there's probably about 10 incidents of people having survived and medically it's unknown how that's possible, but he, he was sort of immensely young and fit and somehow survived this story, stayed in Paris, um, was, you know, he's clearly quite a charming kind of guy uh, and remained in this sort of children's home and was trying to get to Manchester uh, and in Manchester's where his brother lived and his brother's wife didn't want him there so thought that would be just another mouth to feed it would be a kind of annoyance and he just kind of got very depressed and went back he asked to be repatriated, went back home and two weeks later tried it again and died uh, over the Black Forest in Germany where he's still buried and uh, he's in the kind of churchyard there uh, and that was never repatriated interestingly, sort of I don't know, old ladies come and change the candle and put fresh flowers there 
and the local. It's, uh, there's, there's an interesting, uh, in terms of that sort of empathy, there are interesting stories. There's, there's two villages uh, in the countryside of Val d'Oise, which is the département just outside, um, to the north-west uh, of Paris. So it's quite a historically a kind of rural space. And um, so it's full of these villages, but they're suburban villages. You know, uh, 80% of people who live there work in Paris. Um, and there are two incidents there along the same flight path, about 10 miles from each other. And in one, somebody fell into public land and they're buried in an unmarked, completely unmarked grave. And I know I'm the only person to have sat by there. I, I mean, I just had lunch there, but <laughs> I did go there and I sort of visited this pile of dirt, unmarked pile of dirt in the, the local cemetery. In the next village, um, he fell into someone's garden. And so the interesting about garden as a space is that it's, it's super private. It's very much you know, a suburban villa, you know, locked gates. You can go through the front door, through the kitchen, out the back door, or go down the lots of double doors down the side passage, and you're, back, you're in that ubiquitous sort of suburban garden that's private, absolute private space, except you know, they left the sky open, you know, and it's the sky that sort of potentially connects us uh, physically, in this case, unexpectedly physically, but also massively sort of metaphorically, you know, there's notions of common sky, which are true and sort of not true if you need, a, you know, the price of a ticket to, to, to kind of get up there. Um, but I think poetically it's, it's very interesting space. But actually that person fell right into someone's life. You know, th this was... Uh, unavoidable to, to sort of have to take on their otherness and their um, reality I mean I'll, I'll give I, an example of me in London was that I tend to give money to people in the street but I only do it once I only do it to the first person occasionally I might do it twice in a day I never have yet done it three times so I, I, I within myself you know this, this is not a far from a preachy piece I think it, it's, it's really about exactly that portcullis if, that comes down between um, sort of acceptance and I, so I think the same story happened culturally in two very very similar villages one person fell and fell one side of that threshold and in, in the next, there's this really touching um, memorial in the graveyard, which is, uh, it says uh, in French, um, Voyageur inconnu, uh, um, unknown traveller, you dreamed of your promised land, now rest in peace. And it's beautifully tended, and it's a very, very, it's a very empathetic, it's, it's a there but for the grace of God go I kind of message. And I'm sort of interested in that, what that threshold is, so that this, this piece, in a sense, it, it places the viewer right on that. And I'll sort of, I'm definitely giving you a nudge because I'm telling you to pick up the glass, really. And I, I'm, I'm aware that in that game, I'm sort of, I'm almost pushing myself to, to lean, to not be lazy, you know, to not be complacent. 
and and to lean to try to lean so so towards uh, the more difficult and uncomfortable acceptance of of other people's narratives of 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 other countries other spaces other other awkward inconvenient truths and awkward realities i suppose um, it it places itself on that threshold but in in a sense it's almost about that threshold as a piece as well um, as well as it's got an opinion about it i suppose of sorts um. it's interesting Graham, that um very few people survived this kind of journey. Why people set off, they obviously don't yeah. know yeah. what the odds are. Ignorance, um, yeah. yeah. Poverty, a big part of poverty is, and desperation. It must be the idea that, that people who have left have mm. arrived somewhere. Yeah. I, I had a theory about that, but it's, it, which is that it, it has, it has dropped off, but there was an incident really, there was an incident in London not so long ago, um, of a young South African who fell onto the roof of a, again in Richmond, it's got a wealthy part of London. And now South Africa is a place where you know you're not that far from a mobile phone or the internet. The information that used to not get back to third world countries is is much more available. So in a sense, I was thinking that was the reason that it's kind of dropped off and yet people still try it. So it's a puzzle, but the word desperation, it's, it's surprising. People often find themselves with very, very little to lose and the sort of against all odds snowball in hell chance of doing something will still drive people into this, into this particular pocket and then people are setting sail in kind of leaky boats. Mm. Is it all men? Apart from one. Mm. Apart from one who is again a very early case um, in Paris of a woman who and it took, it's, it took quite a bit of digging to find and it was, she, she was Croatian and working as a chambermaid illegally in Paris and word got to her that the immigration authorities were coming and so she tried to escape uh, and, and she, she's another person who fell on takeoff um, uh, but it is, it is apart from her all men yeah I end up in some weird... I have to confess, I mean, it's a very solemn piece in some ways, but I also... There's a sort of strange sense of, you know, over... I, I can't stay, you know, too po-faced for too long. And I, I have to sort of... I have a sort of private relationship with a person who fell in Portugal. I actually sat in this lovely spring in um, Caparica in in Portugal and I just sat for a couple of days in this lovely bit of kind of countryside and and I just you know I, I, I sort of reached an accord <laughs> uh, in my own you know imagination with the person who fell that I felt oh okay this is this is okay this is all right it's okay I mean it's it's a it's a phenomenon it it it's a thing that's happening you know that there, there's an obvious element of pity Different different places, but there's usually you know there's kind of different adventures involved in this, 
sort of arriving at a place trying to find it. And I, I think, um, you know, I'm also slightly reading that question about how, how the local neighbourhood takes things on. But usually, usually the person who has found the body feels very, very involved with that life. You know, it, it, there's something really quite, quite touching about that. I mean, none of that do I reveal in the piece. You know, that, that I'm just telling you about now. In, in a way, you just you just don't know. All you all you're looking at there is an image of something like the same place, but not exactly. Taken a whole load later by someone who was never there, never witnessed the event. There's no evidence of the person. You know nothing about their lives, and. Um, the sound you hear is also dislocated by time. So, so in a sense, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of testament to how, how far we can go in imagination. We don't necessarily imagine what's real, but we, we, we use a sort of other surfaces to imagine through. And that's why I, I sort of have this thing about landscape itself. It is a kind of read-write medium. We, we translate, you know, we, we translate into this kind of road movie of space. Uh, a kind of narratives. We, 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 it's, it sort of amazes me that it sort of works, that we can, in a, in a way, it's easier to be oblique about reality than um, direct with it. Um, I, I, there is an image, which I may show in the lecture, but I, I'm a bit queasy about it. It's the only image of actually somebody falling. It's really like when I saw the images of people jumping from the Twin Towers. There was a sort of... Um, I just felt it was so intimate, the, this moment, so desperate. Um, and that was an image that at the time, 1970, was reproduced. It was on I think, the cover of Time magazine. And it was a, a plane spotter at the airport who was taking photographs of the plane. And when he uh, enlarged it, he saw this, there's this sort of figure of someone falling. So in a sense, that is, um, and uh, that has massive sort of, it has massive resonance, but I, I, so I, I find it a bit much in some ways. There's this other sense, you know, that we are, that there's also this sense that we are kind of spatial and who we are kind of existentially is quite sort of gaseous anyway. It's quite sort of, it's, we, we kind of suddenly said, well, we are smoke, you know. I, I, I like that phrase, that, that there's a sort of quality about being alive that's really quite uh, hard, hard to define. So, so defining that by, um, by using sky or land or something seems, seems to work quite well to me. Let's go in. I think. And if anyone got any more questions, I think I'm going to just leave you to it. Actually, so I, I'll maybe sort of, if you want to ask me questions in there. But I think just go in and experience it.
Where does the image come from? How do you mean? Um, it's projected or...? Yeah, it it's comes from a, um, a transparency. So there's a slide projector up there. Um, the yeah, and then it's projected through the mirror into there, yeah. And you see the curly cord, is, that's the transducer um, attached to the glass. So if you move it too far away, you lose the sound? Well, no, as long as it's connected, as long as you don't rip it out. No, no I mean, if you the bowl, the distance of the bowl. No, no, because it's, it's connected by wire. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. It is, and it, it's it's just interesting what you're doing. That that this it, it, people are almost panning for gold. There's a sort of motion of yeah. holding it that nearly everyone does and holds it in this way. The, the first place I did it was with, let's say, was in te with ten of these. Mm -hmm. In a in a church space, and the, the, this has got this very very strong sacramental kind of aspect to it. The church kind of helped that, but I think it, it it sort of does. And I think there's also an aspect about watching people that 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 you know. Um, for me, again, a, a sort of gallery space is a situational space. You know. I don't just I don't just see the Rothko. I see people sitting reverently on benches before the Rothko, and I think that uh, that and I also see the Rothko tea towels in the um, in the gift shop, uh, and, and I think all of that creates a kind of situation. So that's sort of where I I guess I place myself as an artist that that that, that this is you know it's, it's a kind of social it's a social space it's a situational space that I really like sort of watching, watching people, watching each other and kind of cohabiting in the space. It works nicely for me when there's a handful of people in um, who are kind of negotiating each other as well as the objects.